I have been sharing with you a series called, uh, for this last five weeks since Easter, and next week will be our closing of the series, uh, Drawing the Circle Wider. And we've been teaching about drawing the circle wider, and I've had my toy here. And I've seen some of you have taken it and played with it, and that's great because I see you on Facebook. And, and because the, the first thing that we learned was on Easter morning is that even though no one saw the resurrection of Jesus take place, even though no one was an actual witness of the event taking place, the effects, the results, the ripple of the resurrection have definitely drawn a circle wide and big in order of the kingdom of God. If Jesus had a little circle of maybe 12, you know, maybe 72 at one time, some other ones say 120, he had a small circle of people who he was influencing. Then Peter started preaching the gospel, and in the first Sunday, when the Spirit filled him in, on Pentecost, which is the 20th of May, we celebrated this year, uh, uh, he was filled, and 3,000 joined the church that one day. But then Paul comes along with a weird gospel of inclusion of all the Gentiles, and he really breaks the whole thing. He breaks the mold. Because now we know that everyone is welcome into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for all, the Jews and Gentiles. We also learn in the second week that the resurrection empowers our lives to have eternal life, not only here, but in the hereafter, giving us the power to be, come together as the church, giving us the power to be and live in the realm of God, which used to be called or is called the kingdom of God, and, and, and allows us to make us be different in such a way that we can make a difference in our communities. We also have been reminded that the resurrection's ripples, the ripples of the, of, of the resurrections carry the grace of God, carry God's grace, God's unmerited favor, God's saying yes to you in spite of your sin, your shortfalls, or your even consciousness of guilt to a point that you're liberated by that grace that ripples into your heart, that drenches your life and gives you a new meaning. Last week, we were reminded and we discovered that the ripples of God's resurrection include us and that we are God's likeness in this society, in this community, where you work and where you hang out, whether you're visiting a doctor's office, an appointment, or whether you're working in your environment, you are the goodness. You are the likeness of God. You are God's ambassador, emissary to that special space. But today I wish to talk to you about a story that draws the circle even wider, that pushes the envelope and challenges sinful cultural norms of the day. A story of the ripples of hospitality and how this ripple drenches the soul and soaks the hearts through compassion and mercy. Our story begins in the Gospel of Luke, and it is chapter 10. In chapter 9, if you remember, 951 is one of my favorites because it says that at that time, Jesus resolutely looked towards Jerusalem. Remember that one? Jesus decided to look towards Jerusalem and head out towards Jerusalem in his last visit to the city because he was going to be sacrificed in that last visit to the city. He had just fed the 5,000, maybe more than that because it says 5,000 men. If we count the women and, 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 and let's say that 5,000 men... Let's say that half of them were married, right? They were about half married. So then we give 2,500 women. And how about if those 2,500 had kids? 
And in those days, there was no TVs. And it was good to have many, 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 many children. Because you never know who, who was going to survive and who was going to be taking care of you in older age. So there were probably close to 15,000 people that they actually fed in that miracle. So we find Jesus in chapter 10. He is on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a crowd following him, and he stops in different houses and different communities, and, and he stops here, and, and, and this is what happens. There's this expert. There's this expert of the Jewish law. Some of the translations calls him a Pharisee. Some of the translations, the one that we have, they calls him a, an expert on the religious law. And he's there. He's there to test to challenge, to see if he finds something wrong with Jesus because he is an expert in the law and Jesus has been breaking and Jesus has been insinuating things and Jesus has just been messing it up for the law. Not only for the law, but for the Jewish law that you're not supposed to talk to women, certain women. Not only he was, Jesus was hanging out with Jews that he wasn't supposed to, like Matthew, who was a traitor, who was a, uh, who was a scum, according to other Jews. And this guy, he is going to try to find something wrong with Jesus. Actually, he's got it out for Jesus. Listen to how he approaches Jesus in the story and, and, and how Jesus responds to him with the story. One day, an expert of the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? And how do you understand the law of Moses? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man, wanting to justify himself and his actions, asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? <laughs> you see, uh, I love the history of the first century. And those of you who have been blessed and, and, and are lucky to come to my house, you know, I, I brag about the history of the first century and, and all that historical stuff of the first century. Because it's very not too different from this one in terms of humanity. Oh, we have all these new gadgets where we use our fingers for and we can project and do all that fun, but it's the same human being in a different environment. And this guy who knew the law and actually had a very developed interpretation of the law because he answers and gives the one summary of all the law. Interesting. He does that. He gives the one commandment. Maybe he had already heard Jesus talk about that one commandment that summarizes all the law. But he asks Jesus who, and then he replies, I should love the Lord with all your strength, all your mind, everything you've got, all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. But now he asks, who is my neighbor? You see, he asked, who is my neighbor? Is he really asking who is my neighbor? I hear the story differently, Madam Counselor. I hear the story, who is not my neighbor, so that I can reject them. That's what I heard. 
That's what I heard him asking. Who is not so that I don't have to be nice to them? You see? Because he knows the law. He knows who he's supposed to be nice to, who he's not supposed to be nice to according to the Jewish law. And now he throws it to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? He really wants to find out who is not. Think about it. Those who have ear, listen. And Jesus heard his question. You see, the whole idea here is about hospitality. And who is my neighbor? And who do I owe hospitality to? You see, he thought the hospitality only belonged to a certain group. The hospitality that this Jewish expert of the law was supposed to be expressed for only a particular group of Jews. Not even to the whole Jews, just a particular group of Jews. So he was very exclusive. He was just to tell him the limits. To whom I can reject. Whom I can mistreat. To whom I am allowed to see beneath myself and discriminate. Tell me, Jesus, who can I reject? Tell me, Jesus, who may I not treat as a neighbor? And Jesus, hearing perhaps that conflict in my friend's attorneys of the law, of the Jewish law, his heart answers with a story. And listen to the story. I want to read it from my version in the, well, I can read it from here. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at the line there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised, <laughs> a ugly, a not worthy person called a Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, listen to the words. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of him. Uh, if this bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I see you. What? An unexpected surprise. You see, the, the, the young, rich uh, uh, attorney, uh, uh, Pharisee of the law of God, <laughs> was now confronted with an unexpected ending. A Samaritan helping me? I don't want those kind of people touching me. And yet, a Jew in need and two religious officials pass by. Actually, they do what used to happen some years ago in this country and used to happen in South Africa. You see somebody, you go on the other side of the road. I'm not going to walk on the same side of those people. That's what they did. Same thing. 
They see another brother down, beat up, in need, vulnerable. And they just don't even stop to find out. What love? What compassion? Oh, it was exclusive only for a certain kind of people. Remember, it was limited. So a Samaritan who is not supposed to be helping a Jew anyway, sees the person on the road and decides to care for it, for him, ignores all the con conventional rules of the day, takes him there. The, you see, the Samaritan felt compassion, a sense of pity, a sense of pity and solidarity because he may have been beat up too at one time being one of those rejected in society. He may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. So he knew how it felt to be left almost half dead at the side of the road, maybe. But his compassion didn't stay in just a feeling level like we do when we watch TV. And we just have that compassion because we saw it. But he engaged his compassion. He actually did something. He moved. He took a step and got closer to the guy got closer to the guy. He had to kneel down. He had to get dirty with, down and dirty with the guy. He had to have to deal with that blood. I don't know if they were aware of HIV or not. They had those universal practices of protection. His compassion led him to engagement, going to him, soothed, bandaged, and care, picked him up, took him to a place of caring, and gave instructions. You see, hospitality sometimes is not always convenience. Hospitality sometimes is dirty and not comfortable. At times, it's even sacrificial, as Christ teaches us. It takes preparation. See, it requires to know each other's stories. And I'm pretty sure that even though this Samaritan helped this Jew on the way somehow, they may have heard each other's stories. And, and that relationship of hospitality that the Samaritan began with this Jew, I'm sure it grew closer because now they may know each other's stories. They spend time together. Hospitality requires us to spend time together with others. Hospitality is about drawing the circle wider, welcoming the unfriendly, opening the doors wide and making space in the table. Hospitality is about being with and bringing your defenses, my defenses, down. But you know, when I was reading the story, I was wondering if we could read the story in a different way. You see, Jesus tells the story to the, not only to that Pharisee uh, law uh, expert, but there's people there. And he tells the story in such a way that we, the audience, is actually watching the man in the ground, the first one passing by, the second one passing by. And sometimes we, or the preacher, implicates us in the story, and we become one of the three. This time, I want to challenge us to not be one of the three that goes by. I mean, the two that go by and the one that helps. Can I invite you this time to be the one beat up in the ground? Can I invite you to imagine this time if the story was told about you, about us, being beat up in the ground, being taken, you know, being just held up? Could you imagine being the ones robbed, beat up, 
kicked in the face in our ribs and our heads. Could we imagine being the one whose clothes is taken off, left in shame? Perhaps we can imagine being curled up in pain in the ground, in the rocks, hurting. Could we imagine lying there? And we hear a person coming by, and, and our pain, and with our bloodshot eyes, we can see the person, but we can get hope. We sense relief. But soon shatter because the person left, afraid, leaving us quietly vulnerable and defenseless. Perhaps we can imagine another steps coming by, approaching us. We can hear it as our body throbs with pain. And yet, no help. Imagine it's getting dark. It's getting cold. We are left there alone and we think our life is leaving us. With our weak vision, and our, we can see almost a faint silhouette of somebody approaching us. This one stops. He comes close to us. He kneels down. He actually carefully pours water in our wounds, oil to soothe our pain. And with his scarred hands, he bandages at us. With his voice, he tells us, everything is going to be okay. I'm taking care of you. And then he takes us to a place where we can regain health and strength, a place of renewal, a place of refreshment, a place of grace, a place of an unexpected stranger who had mercy and lifted us, strengthened us, called us by our name, set us at table, and above all, paid it all. Jesus was the one who rescued us. However, that's not the way Jesus told the story. Nice, right? Good feeling. It was an imagination exercise. It was good. But that's the way Jesus told the story because the actual story was told because the other one was trying to figure out who can I reject? Remember that one? Who can I say is not my neighbor? Checkmate, Jesus says. Even the one that your society, even the one that your culture, even the one that your race says, reject them like the Samaritans. He's your neighbor. He's the one helping you. He's the one standing next to you. He is the one who sacrificially moved away from him or herself and extended help, hands of help, hands of Jesus. And Jesus asked him, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man in the ground? And he replied, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said to him, yes, now you go and do the same. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the power of your word.
We thank you for Jesus' spirit who's here and we listen in our hearts and impacts us, touches us in such a way that our hearts begin to change little by little, not because we want, but because of your grace, your mercy, your compassion. Thank you for allowing us to, to come into your home of grace. Thank you for extending such hospitality to our souls, to our lives, to our present and our future. We thank you, Lord, for now making us instruments of your hospitality. We thank you, Lord. We, we pray for this community and we pray for, for the community classes that meet downstairs during the week. We bless them and we pray for their efforts as they uh, uh, enrich the people that come together. We pray for the plans and for the things that are happening for summer program camp, for the way in which children will be touched and families will be transformed if they would just listen. And that's our job, to build those bridges. We thank you for the spin ministry of service to people in need as it's coming and evolving. We thank you for our community meals, which not only satisfy physical hunger, but spiritual hunger and thirst in our community. We thank you for allowing us to be creative and have the freedom to worship, dance, sing, praise with all the toys you have given us, old and new. But we pray for our community. We pray for our teachers. We pray for our students. We pray for health workers in our community. We pray for first respondents, oh God. And we thank you for them. We ask you to bless them and protect them. But we also pray for individuals in our immediate church community who are sick at home, who are traveling or weak, bless them, touch them, heal them. We pray also for those who are here in spite of their pain or their condition. We thank you for their faith and for expecting of your hospitality, O oh God. But we also pray for those who are here gathered this morning and for our families, wherever they're at, wherever they may be, in your presence, near us, or far away in some land. We extend our blessings, our favor, our best wishes for them. But we thank you for Jesus who challenged this guy and got the answer he wasn't expecting to change his heart, change his perspective on who was his neighbor. But we thank you that he straightened the issue and he instilled the ripples of those words continue to affect, effect, and transform our lives. And for that, we thank you. But we thank you for him to taught us to say together and pray, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.